Ah, alrighty, so let's go ahead and uh, begin. We'll be in Revelation chapter 2, starting uh, where we left off last week, and that is verse 17. Um, as we continue to work through uh, all of this, uh, today we're going to spend pretty much the bulk of our time going through these salutary letters here at the beginning of the book of Revelation. This is chapter 2 and 3, um, because I think one of, the, one of the things that a lot of people forget is that the book of Revelation... Uh, one, it starts out with messages straight from Christ and the Spirit of God. And two, that its primary goal is to deal with actual historical churches in the situations that they are. There's, there's some that are facing persecution. There's some that um, every member of the church, it sounds like, will be put to death very shortly uh, for, the, for the claim of Christ and uh, all of the effects that comes with that. Um, it's, it's one of these things that kind of breaks into the area, even in our study of the Spirit of God, is does not God have the ability to stop such sufferings? Right? It's one of these, it's one of these things that, you know, um, people talk about and say, um, you know, does God ordain all the things that come to pass? Or uh, does he just allow things? You know, kind of, wh- how do we make sense of this kind of stuff? Um, now, the scriptural teaching on that is, yes, indeed, God ordains all that whatsoever comes to pass. Um, but I think a lot of people hold that God just simply allows certain things to come to pass as if that's a better solution. When in reality, it really isn't. Uh, that becomes a much worse solution because, one, it means God is not exclusively in charge of what's going on. And two, it means that there's really no purpose behind the evil. But what we understand here, and as showing up in the way that Jesus is speaking about this, and exactly what the Spirit says, is that all of these things are coming to pass for purposes. There's intention behind it. Uh, Did God have the ability to stop the martyrdom of his people? Yep. Did he? No. How about their persecution? Did he have the ability to come in and actually just kill false teachers as they were speaking on the spot? Yeah. He did that in certain instances. If you remember the story of Herod, when he was blaspheming against the Lord and he fell over dead and worms ate him. Remember that story? Not really covered in Sunday school very often. Um, God is able to do things like this, but he very, very seldom does. Uh, There's places like when Uzzah reaches out and touches the Ark of the Covenant. Remember? Where they had put it on a cart and they were pulling it back to Jerusalem and it's about to fall into the mud and he puts his hand out to steady it, to prevent it from falling on the ground, and God strikes him dead instantaneously. That's a fascinating uh, story, one that is uh, very uh, terrifying and should be, but it speaks of the reality that sometimes God does intervene when evil is happening, and uh, other times, in fact, most of the time, our suffering is something that he brings us through. He does not just save us from. Um, so the letters here at the beginning of the book of Revelation prepare the church to expect uh, here at the close of Scripture that when we pass through sufferings, it is not an accident of time. It is, it is an intentional path that we have been ordained to walk through. There is, there is something gifted to us. In fact, the early church talks about uh, suffering in this manner, that it is a gift. And it's a really interesting way. They speak primarily of martyrdom this way where they will refer to martyrdom as a gift. And there, were, there, were, there was such a focus on it that there were people who sought martyrdom, tried to go out and become martyrs somehow, somewhere. 
And the early church interacted with that as well. And, and we hear an early church document talking about this reality and responsibility that they have not to go out and seek martyrdom. Because if you steal something, that's not a gift. If God is not giving you martyrdom, don't go seek it. Same with suffering. We're not told to go suffer because suffering is awesome. No, we're told if we are given the gift of suffering and martyrdom, to accept it gladfully, generously, gratefully, but don't go out and seek it. If we go out and seek it, that's just like any gift. If we, if we make it, you know, uh, if God gives us a million dollars, well, what person would look at that and go, well, that's not a nice gift. Well, that's a great gift. But how many of you are going out going, well, I'm only going to follow the Lord if, uh, if he gives me a million dollars. That's a completely wrong way to look at it, right? That is seeking to steal the gift, if the gift exists at all. Same for martyrdom. Same for suffering. When we look at it as a gift, it actually shows us a whole other side of, one, who's giving it to us, and two, that it has purpose. And the way that Jesus speaks to the churches here in the beginning of the book of Revelation really sets uh, them up and us up to understand the book of Revelation very, very well. Because if, if you want to understand the book of Revelation, understand that it is primarily about a suffering church and Christians suffering in the world and the reason to stay and endure to the end. Sometimes sufferings can get so massive that they overwhelm us. Sometimes one thing after another, after another, after another happens, and it just distracts us from the fact that we have promises from God that endure through all of this. When we come to the Church of Pergamum, here in Revelation 2, we have one of the longest testaments to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Right? I'll recall to your minds that to the church in Ephesus, the Spirit says, uh, in, at the end of verse 7, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And at the end of the, church, the letter to the church of Smyrna, uh, there in verse 11, the Spirit says to the churches, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And then in verse 17, where we just quickly read um, and, and did not spend much time at all last week, uh, to the church in Pergamum in verse 17, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give to him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. These are the three messages here at the end of these letters that are then carried through and assumed through the rest of these. The same promise holds to everyone. If you're a Christian who conquers in this life, which means to maintain faithfulness throughout your whole life, you will eat of the tree of life. That is a promise to every Christian, not just to the church in Ephesus. The same to the church in Smyrna. So the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. That is one of our great eternal hopes. We will, all of us, unless we live to the time of the return of Christ, pass through the first death, but not the second death. And that's something that Revelation spends a lot of time focused on. The same thing is to the church in Pergamum. Here where we start in verse 17. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, that sounds enigmatic, doesn't it? Kind of sounds a little strange and removed, not very clear. This is, this is one of the frustrations with this. We are so far removed from this culture that what exactly it means is a little bit hard to parse out. Uh, there's a lot of theories on it. I'm going to give you the one I agree with. Um, all of them 
are generally consistent with the promises that come to us in the gospel. Um, but I think one makes more sense than the other. Um, uh, but there, there are half a dozen or so theories out there as to exactly what this is referring to. Um, obviously, manna. What's the picture being given? Where are we calling our minds back to? The desert. The desert. The wanderings in the desert. We have two statements to the two previous churches. One is eating of the tree of life and living forever. One is not tasting the second death. Life, death, and now we focus on to sustenance. While we are here in the midst of suffering, not having tasted of the first death yet, what keeps us, what, what energy gives us to endure? Where did manna come from? Heaven. God provided the very thing that sustained them in the desert. Why did God give manna? That's, that's a much deeper question. It usually doesn't get talked about. But God says expressly why he gave manna. And that was mentioned in Deuteronomy chapter 8. He says specifically there at the beginning of that chapter, I fed you with food in the wilderness so that you would learn that man does not depend on bread alone, but by everything that comes from the mouth of God. The reality is that manna and sustenance in the middle of a dark world teaches us there's only one that we can depend on, and it's not you or me or our pastors or our country or anything else. The only thing that's going to keep us faithful and enduring is everything that comes from the mouth of God. This is why we spend so much time in the Word of God. This is why we spend so much time amongst the people of God. It is so that what God is doing continually sustains us as we go along. The same reason why the picture of manna was given in the desert. Now, Jesus talks about the manna in the desert in John 6, if you remember. Because all of them, right after the feeding of the 5,000, they all come to him and go like, hey, we want more. That is great. You sustain our physical needs. And Jesus says, that's just a picture they said, but, but Moses fed us manna in the wilderness. He gave us bread from heaven to eat. And what does Jesus do? He turns the whole thing around and says, I'm the bread from heaven. Anyone who eats me and drinks my blood, he'll live. Life comes and sustenance comes through Christ. We depend on everything that comes from the mouth of God. John specifically calls Jesus the word of God for that exact quality that he has. We depend on him for all things. It's not just for salvation. It's for daily sustenance. It's for everything that keeps us enduring until the end. Meaning, when we talk about enduring to the end and then we'll find salvation, it is not reach down and pull yourself up by your spiritual bootstraps. No, it is focus on Christ because no matter what comes your path, you don't have this taken care of. We don't have the solution deep within ourselves. Morning, Ralph. And so he says, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. What the hidden manna means, there are a couple of theories. Um, one is that it was the manna inside the Ark of the Covenant. Another is that this is, this is Christ himself, the invisible, uh, because at this point he had already ascended. Either way, the meaning is still clear. This is something that comes from God and sustains us. That is exactly the picture. We're in Revelation chapter 2, verse 17. And he says, I will give him a white stone. 
Now, white stone was meant for a couple of different things, which is why what exactly is meant here is kind of lost to us. But there's two main possibilities. One is that for the, the banquets after a victory in sports games, a white stone was given to each victor, right? Uh, it was kind of like their, uh, their ticket to the banquet afterwards. You won, you get this white stone, you come to the banquet. A very legitimate thing as well. Uh, most likely the picture at work here. Um, but there is also one that has to do with when somebody is acquitted in, in a trial of a crime. Uh, they are given a white stone of innocence. So what, which one, we are not entirely sure. But the reality is both are true aspects of the gospel. Uh, I would say the first one holds much more clarity as far as what's going on here. And so I will say that is my opinion, that it is the one given to the victor at the end. And it, it flows perfectly with what Jesus and the Spirit of God are both saying in this passage, is that the goal is not how you start. Right? The goal is that you finish. Right? I, I, there's a lot of Christians who align their Christian life to say, I said this prayer, therefore I'm a Christian. I, I did this, therefore I'm a Christian. I've done that. And, and their entire focus is towards the past. While that's legitimate and true, that will not sustain us. The promises of God that sustain us are all about the future. What suffering we're about to endure, what persecutions we're about to pass through, whatever is coming our way, God will bring me through. That is that manna that continues to uh, sustain us regardless of what situation. I mean, look at the, look at the uh, thing that he says to the church in Pergamum here, right? Verse 12. So the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Oh, we'll pass right by that. I'm not going to get rabbit-trailed on that bit. Uh, Yet you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Remember to the church in Ephesus, he said, you hate them, I hate them, good on you. And here they don't. They allow such teachings and people who hold such teachings to go uncontested in the church. And so verse 16, he comes to the present, he says, therefore repent. And then he brings their focus to the future. If you don't, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. In other words, it's going to be a lot better for them if you warn them. Because if not, I will. That, that, should, that should settle real hard into the minds of leaders in the church that allow sin to run rampantly, either behind the scenes or out in the open. Because what he says here is, and, and I think there's this, not I think. I've seen uh, in the church people think that you know um, to to be firm about something is is insensitive. But the reality is, to be firm about a reality in the church, to be firm about teaching, to be firm about um, certain sins uh, specifically out in the open ones that we have to actually wrestle against, it is actually better not only for the church, it is better for the person who is carrying it out that we deal with it on the human level. Because if we allow it to be dealt with on the cosmic level, what does Jesus say? Turn, turn them away from this. 
Now, this wasn't leaders in the church. These were just members in the church. They hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And then he turns to the church and tells the church to repent for allowing them to continue in that teaching. And he says, if not, I'll come and kill him. In verse 16, he gives him an ultimatum, right? Yep. Either repent or else. Right. Right. Yep. A couple more are coming. Yes. Repent or else. Right. And, and the, the job of calling someone to repentance was on the church. And this church in Pergamum wasn't. There are a lot of churches that, that assume to hold a nice face or just to be nice to everyone is the solution for this. No, that's not in any way biblical leadership. What Jesus is saying here is if you have things going on like that, you have got to deal with it because I promise I will at some point and that's not going to be nice. We're going to have problems if it gets to that level. And so he turns around and he says, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then he gives the place that we've been paying attention to, to the one who conquers. He brings their entire focus again to the future. He, he carries on what has happened in the past, what's going on in the present, and then he takes their entire focus and throws it to the future. This is why everyone thinks the book of Revelation is primarily about the future. But it's, it really isn't. The book of Revelation primarily is about repenting and being faithful unto death no matter what it takes. And that necessarily, secondarily, talks about the future. Because Jesus here is not going, you know, I'm going to tell you all this cool stuff about the future. No, he says, stay faithful. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. As you continue on this road of suffering, we talked a little bit at the beginning of how the early church, due to a lot of this, interacted with suffering and called it a gift. Martyrdom, all of these things. These were to be gifts received, if given to you. They are not to be sought. You do not go out and steal gifts from God. You don't go out and go, I'm going to be martyred on Thursday. I can't wait. I'm going to go out there. No, no, no. If it comes to you, accept it, be grateful, and hold your chin up high. Yeah. And he's saying, that's what he's saying, he is, in order to walk this enduring path through suffering and all the way to the one who conquers, you are going to need sustenance from something other than just you. You can't sustain this path. I'll give him a white stone. And a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. What exactly that means? Again, there are multiple theories. I think it holds very well to the one who... Uh, was a victorious uh, in a game, received a white stone, which was basically his ticket to the banquet afterwards. That seems to be fitting here, and the name would be his. It would make sense. But what exactly that means is, unfortunately, unknown to us. I wish I could tell you with absolute clarity and specificity, but I would be lying to you if I said I knew what that was or that anyone actually knows exactly what that means because that's kind of one of these realities that has been lost to history. Let's go to the church in Thyatira. Now, for the last four churches, the Spirit doesn't add anything after that. Jesus just, again, assumes your clarity of the first three. Eat of the tree of life to the one who conquers, will not pass through the second death to the one who conquers, and will receive sustenance along the way to the one who conquers. Those are the first three. He doesn't say any other clarity, which means those are the three main points that we take from those and continue on to the rest. Which is why, again, Revelation was not written 
with just one salutation and then chapter 4 through 22 uh, to the church in Sardis. No, all seven churches received all seven salutations, same for us today, which means we are to learn from each other's problems and each other's successes. And that's kind of the whole point. So let's go to the church in Thyatira, verse 18. To the angel, to the messenger of the church in Thyatira, write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Now, <laughs> what? that would be an incredible letter if it stopped right there. Uh, because that's an incredible salutation to receive from the Lord Jesus. What is, he, what is he encouraging them with? Your love, your faith, your service to one another, your patient endurance, and your latter works exceed the first. You are growing in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are enduring with patience the suffering coming your way. What does he say verse 20? I have this against you. There's a woman in your midst, which he calls Jezebel. Now, if you're familiar with it, what do you know about the story of Jezebel? The actual historical Jezebel well before this. Ahab's wife? What's that? She, she, she was a queen in Israel, in the northern kingdom, that was from Tyre and Sidon, and brought in all sorts of other gods, and all sorts of... Uh, things and led astray a number of people. She was very vocal about it. Uh, and so the fact that he is calling uh, an actual singular woman out in this church and naming her Jezebel is not a kind thing at all. Jezebel um, was the queen that was there when Elijah the prophet was there. And uh, God through Elijah promised that uh, she would soon die and the dogs would lick up her blood. And that's exactly what happened. She fell out a window and yeah. Uh, Really gruesome stuff. It was uh, quite a thing. Um, so that's kind of the background here. He says, verse 20, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her will throw into, uh, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and the heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you, Athiatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned that some call the deep things of Satan, uh, uh, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. And the one who conquers and who keeps my words, or my works until the end, to him I will give authority over na the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, this may look like a largely negative uh, letter. It really isn't. Thyatira uh, on the whole, is being commended for what they're doing with the exception of one thing. They are not dealing with something that is leading astray their members. They have a responsibility. Uh, look at the things this woman was teaching. 
seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. That's brutal. And the church was not dealing with it. And what they were expressing here is that, well, for whatever reason, we're not told why they don't, but he is expressing, Jesus is expressing here, that either you deal with it or I'm going to deal with it. And even at this point, those who continue to follow into her teaching and to, uh, to continue in worshiping whatever false god she is serving, as Jesus himself calls the deep things of Satan here, uh, which is just a terrifying phrase, he says to the church, you can't just not deal with this. It will destroy everything. And so, but he encourages them, hold fast until I come. To the, to the teachings that you have. Now, what will happen here, if they deal with this, those who follow this woman's teaching are going to leave with her. That's going to happen. So here you actually have Jesus. Now, I'm going to put this out there because everyone looks at things like church splits as, as proof that everything's wrong. No. The reality is, sometimes that needs to happen. And here, Jesus is actually commanding them to do that. Those who follow her teachings go with her, and he says, I will encourage that that happens. The reality is, the focus on patient endurance and on holding fast to the word of life is the main focus here. It doesn't mean all church splits are good. But it does mean if something is going on like that, uh, you are necessitated to do so. Chapter 3, verse 1. To the church in Sardis. To the angel of the church in Sardis, write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Um, now, the seven spirits of God is not a reference to the Holy Spirit. I want to be real clear on that on the front end. The seven spirits of God is a, uh, a, a modicum of describing the ways in which God works in totality. Uh, in, in the book of Revelation specifically, uh, you will have uh, numbers have all manner of significance. Seven comes up about a million times, uh, speaking of totality and finality. Uh, and here, the same thing happens. The seven stars, speaking of cosmic levels, speaking of the, uh, also the seven churches that he's writing to. Uh, he's holding seven stars. There's seven lampstands. There's set the sevenfold spirits of God. Again, I'm not going to get into the numerology of these things because a lot of that is theoretical. Uh, and I hate just rank theory and drawing you know huge aspects out of that. But I will say... Seven absolutely speaks to totality and finality here. Um, in other words, if you're looking for another God to save you from this God, there isn't one. Uh, so what, is, what does Jesus say here to the church in Sardis? He says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Dang. I mean, brutal. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. There the entire picture of life shows up again. And I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
That is a terrifying letter. The vast majority of the people attending the church in Sardis are not Christians. I think we have to let that settle into our minds a bit. Because there's, there has been historically a concept that belonging to a church seals you and you're all good. And that overtook the West, uh, the Roman Catholic Church and so forth, for a thousand years. Uh, for a lot of people. And there were many people, in fact, on Wednesday night, <laughs> when, when, uh, when my, my failed stream, uh, one of the first things that we refer to there is the fact that the gathered church is not the bishops and the cardinals. The gathered church is the people, and it's always a mixed group of Christians and unbelievers. Always. And so we can't define the visible church as the church. There is an invisible church, which is all the Christians, wherever they are. But as far as for the gathered assembly, we understand it is always a mix of believers and unbelievers. And while we try to make it clear and make it uh, thoroughly clean so that we don't have unbelievers in the mix, we, we uh, measure people's uh, life before they become leaders and so forth. How much perspective do we have on someone? Has anyone ever surprised you, by the way, with regards to that? Someone's a Christian, everything's fine, and then something happens and everything snaps. And hearts are revealed. It surprises us because we do not have the perspective of where somebody's heart is actually at. You don't actually 100% know that I am a Christian. That has to be clear. And, and what Jesus is saying here to the church in Sardis is the same thing. This is why we do not follow people, because we don't know exactly who they are. We follow Christ. That means that we can actually endure failures of church leadership, for instance. We can endure things like this because we are not following man, we are following God. Here, what does he say to them? The vast majority of the people attending Sardis are not Christians. He says, your church as a whole has the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. You're dead. There's no life here. There's just little sparks of something that once was. And he says here, wake up. And look at what he says there. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. Look at the effect that this is having on Christians. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Now, again, it goes back to everything that proceeds from the mouth of God. What have we received and what have we heard? The same thing goes for Sardis, goes for all churches, which is why we have this published to us. Because the, the responsibility stands on all of us to how do we shore up what remains, no matter where a church is at. What are we to focus on? What we have received and heard. For us, it is the scriptures. Because that's where the prophets and the apostles spoke to the church. It is why, we, it is why every reformation in history was based on the scriptures, period. It was never based on, hey, let's go out and make sure we do all the nice and good works. No reformation is based on that. The reformation is based on the testimony of Christ, on the gospel of Christ, and on the works that follow for those who preach it rightly. Look at verse 4. There's just a few names in Sardis. What is going to be the effect in this church if those that are Christians left in that church are faithful to what Jesus is saying here. What's going to happen? 
Yeah. Well, what if that makes them unpopular? Because honestly, what happens usually is you get very unpopular and a lot of those who are not Christians leave. I mean, he's talking in Sardis, there's only a handful of people that are actually Christians and yet this is a church of an entire city. Sure, what remains in is about to die. Verse 4, you still have just a few names in Sardis. Few in Greek means the same thing as in English, a handful. <coughs> By far the minority. People who have not soiled their garments. They will walk with me in white for they are worthy. We're not talking about a first-class Christian versus second-class Christians. We are talking about Christians. This path is going to hurt. And so Jesus turns the command back to them. The one who conquers <clears throat> will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life, even if everybody hates you for what you're going to have to do. <coughs> what does Jesus say? I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Wouldn't it be so much easier for this faithful few in Sardis if Jesus came and confessed their name in front of the whole church? Wouldn't that make everything easier? It would, wouldn't it? If Jesus just kind of shows up to the church and goes, by the way, there's only eight Christians in this entire assembly of probably a few hundred that person, that person, that person, that, those are the ones that are actually mine. I'm out. <laughs> it just turns around and leaves. What effect would that have on the church? Terror. Because how many are attending this church that think that they are on the ups with Christ? All of them. Self-deception is a brutal reality of the church. And Jesus here is dealing with it head on because... The reality is, if you're not holding to what we have received and heard, people have no idea. There are churches all throughout this land that pretend to pay attention to the Word of God <clears throat> that do not. And in their pews sit a majority of unbelievers. If they are to come in and actually give the Word of God faithfully, a majority of people will leave. He also gives them an ultimatum here too. Yes. Yep. And you will not know at what hour I will come. Not not to save the nice ones or the Christians. No. Against the whole visible church, I will come against you. I will destroy you and lay you waste. You say, well, what about the faithful few? It's kind of like the Sodom and Gomorrah question, isn't it? What about the faithful few? If Christ is going to come and actually end them all through persecution and whatnot, let's just say this is Jesus' uh, version of kill them all and God will sort it out. It is a brutal message and you're saying it is a direct ultimatum. Fix this or I will end you. It doesn't mean that churches that continue on are the faithful ones. No, this is just for Sardis. We don't know exactly what happened to Sardis. We know a, a couple of them. Uh, we know Philadelphia and we know Ephesus. Um, and we know bits about Laodicea. Uh, it, they basically 
continue on as you would expect. Basically, the bowling ball had already been cast and heading towards the pins. So it's very... <clears throat> People think that when they receive... If they received a personal letter from Jesus, that everything would change in their life. It wouldn't. People think that. Um, it's one of the things I asked at the beginning of the Gospel of John. If you... Do you think your faith would be stronger if you saw a miracle? And a lot of people are like, yeah, yeah, I think it would. No, it wouldn't. Scripture teaches us actually that that's not actually how faith works. Faith is a gift that is not a response to circumstances, right? Same thing goes here. A lot of these churches continued their trajectory, the ones that we know of, uh, just continued their trajectory because that's usually what's easiest and it's what we default to. It's what they know. Yeah, and it's what they know. And it's really hard to receive something like this. I mean... If you are so in the wrong that you are tolerating things like the Jezebel lady uh, or, um, or 90 plus percent of your church are unbelievers, which means you are not preaching the gospel or the scriptures. You are, you are focusing on something else, which is why Jesus says you, you, you need to keep to what you've received and heard, not something else. Um, usually when groups of people are on that trajectory, trying to turn them all uh, rarely ever happens. It needs some enormous push from outside. But, but what Jesus is saying here um, does not largely change these churches, which is kind of frustrating uh, because, well, you'd think it would be that easy, but it really isn't. And people are far more uh, pursuit of what's comfortable rather than what is right. And... Uh, this is why Jesus continues to remind, this is a war. And he keeps on saying it, to the one who conquers, I will give to the tree of life. I will give the right to the tree of life. To the one who conquers will not taste the second death. The one who conquers, I will give the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone. Whatever all of these exact things mean, it's going to be difficult to do what is right. And it's going to be easy to do what is wrong all the time. Because how many times does, does sin overpromise comfort and then underdeliver on reality? How many times are we faced with such situations where we go, well, we could contend for this, but it's a lot easier just not? I'd have a lot more friends uh, if I just chose easy paths, honestly. Wouldn't we all? Verse 7 To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, Right? The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. If you don't think that's one of the most terrifying uh, realities about Jesus' own work, uh, he didn't really grasp what he says. So let's, let's see what he calls himself here. He opens and no one will shut, and he shuts and no one will open. In other words, who are those who follow Christ? Those that the Father gave him, and they enter by him the door, and he is the shepherd. Everyone enters by him, and those who are not entering by him will not enter by any other means. He says, I will open the door to those who are given to me by my Father, and no one can shut the door, no one can prevent that, and then I will shut the door, and no one can open it. Yep, that's exactly the picture, exactly right. God opened the door, God shut the door. And if you don't think there were people banging on the outside of that as soon as the rain started falling, Noah opened to us, we were wrong. No. 
That's a much more terrifying story than I think people give it credit for. Mm -hmm. I think mainly because we make cartoons out of it so often when in reality that was one of the most terrifying things that ever happened on this planet. Jesus again starts off verse 8, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door that no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Look, look at this. He says, I know your works, and then he connects it to what? Yeah, you've kept my word. You've kept my word, and you have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews but are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because I have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming upon the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Nothing negative is said to this church. They're encouraged. In, in their city, they are being maligned. They are being slandered against by what he calls synagogue of Satan. Those that claim to be Jews, but they're not. Uh, this would be ethnic Jews who are uh, calling against the Christians for saying that they follow the Messiah. Again, here, he says that's not a true synagogue. A true synagogue focuses on the Word of God. And if you truly focus on the Word of God, you would follow Jesus Christ. Here, he's speaking to a church in Philadelphia. This is a Greek church, they're Gentiles. Yeah. So a pillar of the temple of God, one part of the temple, this is, this is something that holds up the roof and maintains one of the um, most uh, central aspect of this. Um, the same picture is brought down to us in both Ephesians 2 and Revelation 20, that we are, all of us, and 1 Peter chapter 2 as well, we are all of us stones in the temple of God, all of us sections of the temple of God. For this church specifically, he's saying... Um, they claim to be a part of the synagogue. You're part of the temple. The synagogue was built as an extension of the temple as, as Jews lived further and further away from the temple. They were to come there, they were to hear the word of God, and it was, it was seen as an extension of the temple. And what Jesus says is, you are an extension of the temple. Because at this point already, the temple of God in, in Jerusalem had been destroyed, and Jesus himself had already set up destroy this temple, and in three days I'll build it back again, speaking of his body. And then those same pictures all through Acts and all through the epistles apply all that temple imagery to the church. And so what he's saying is, this group of people that are slandering you as part of the synagogue, which was supposed to be an extension of the temple, you are actually the temple. They think that they're closer to God than you. They will serve you. You are the pillar of the temple. It, it's reversing the whole thing around and saying, simply because you follow me, simply because of your faith in me, you are closer to me than those who go to synagogue and think that they follow me when they have rejected me as Messiah.
which means again, just because somebody is Jewish does not mean they are right or they are in the family of God. It doesn't work that way. They must come to Christ. In order to be a true son of Abraham, they must have the faith of Abraham, where they depend on the one that God has sent and depend on everything that proceeds out of his mouth. So somebody being Jewish does not grant salvation. It never has. We have unfaithful Jewish people throughout history. That's like the majority all throughout the Old Testament. Look at, we went to the um, time of Jezebel earlier, right? Look at during that time. Uh, Elijah says, I'm the only one left who follows the Lord. The only one in all of the nation of Israel. Everyone else is following the Baals and the Ashtoreth poles and all these types of things. And God comes up to him and we actually receive the, uh, the specific number there. The only time in all of uh, Israel's history that we receive that where he goes, I have kept 7,000 Jewish people following my name. You are not the only one left. But you have to understand, that's 7,000 people in a nation of millions. Like 1 or 2%. And boy, did it feel lonely to Elijah. He had never met another one. And God says, don't, don't fret. This doesn't depend on you and you're not the only one left. I've kept 7,000 for my name that have not bowed the knee to Baal. That was the true number of saved Israelites that day. I mean, we're talking single-digit percentages. Even if you take the lowest estimates. Yeah, where are they? God says, none of your business. And it's, it's kind of one of these <laughs> things you're just like, okay. Uh, and what, I mean, what does he say to Elijah? He gives him bread to sustain him. He tells him not to fear his own death. In fact, Elijah doesn't even pass through the first death. Elijah's carried off to heaven straight up. That's one of the very few exceptions that that has happened. But here, the same thing is being said to them. Why the temple? Because they're claiming to be an extension of the temple as a synagogue. He says, they're not even that. You are the temple. I have, I have so seen to it that the Spirit of God indwells the church, whether Jewish or Gentile, of all who call on my name, they are the temple of God. Together. And so, is the church in Philadelphia the whole temple? No. But you're not some obscure part of the temple, part of the outer courts of the Gentiles or one of the tent poles way out there. No, no, no. The church is to be seen as central to the purposes of God, not some added-on addendum to the synagogue. So also the spirits must have been working through the angels, right? Yep. The church. Yep. Yep, absolutely. Now we go to Laodicea. <clears throat> to the angel of the church in Laodicea. Yeah, we're going to do this and then we'll end. I can't believe it's already 10 o'clock. How'd that happen? To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen. <laughs> the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you are either cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I have no need of anything. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. 
The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, much has been made about this church. A lot of comparisons to the modern day church. Um, but the reality is, all seven of these churches are present in all ages of all the churches everywhere, including the first century. These are literal historical churches. There have always been lukewarm churches. There have always been faithful churches. There have always been unfaithful churches. There have always been those who have fallen out of love with their Lord. The question is not, is this endemic of an entire age? But the real question, it's so much easier to talk about the, the world church and its problems. How about we focus on us first? Does this exist with us? This is the question that uh, exudes to the church in Laodicea. They are so comfortable in their wealth and so comfortable in the things that they have that they think that because of their comfort, all is well. And what exactly the cold or hot, lukewarm, we can talk about that at another time, but let's just say what is going on in this church largely. Your comfort has led to laziness and carelessness when it comes to following the Lord. You think you are rich, you think you are prospering, but indeed you are poor, wretched, pitiable, blind, and naked. That's brutal. There's nothing, there's nothing good said about this church at all. In fact, it's not even like a testament to the leaders, go out and say this. He's not even talking about the word of God. In fact, he just says, y'all don't even think you need me anymore. Like, you got this covered. Ah, oh, we, can, we can make fine clothing for ourselves. You're like Adam and Eve in the garden. Choosing the fig leaves over the clothing that God makes you from the skins of an animal. No, nah, no, nah, my fig leaves are fine. I have said many times in that story in Genesis 3, that the picture of repentance is taking off the fig leaves that you think are sufficient and placing on the clothing that God has made for you. That is a picture of repentance right there. Unrepentance is saying, eh, I'm good. The fig leaves are great. <laughs> I already made a covering. I'm fine. Everything's good. And it's actually quite comfortable here in the garden. And so he says to this church, he's like, you don't even know how wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked you are. Brutal. Because there's no aspect to spiritual life that is left unturned. You can't even see it. You are wretched, which means you are in your sins and all of these things. The testament to the church, which people make as a part of evangelism here, is always a mistake. In verse 20, this is a command to the gathered assembly. This is not a command to individuals out that have not repented. This is a command to the church. You don't even welcome me into your assembly because you don't think you need me. And so he's, he's given the picture to the church in Laodicea who is gathered all together. Think of this picture. They're all gathered together. They're all prospering. They're all well-dressed. Everything's fine. And the only thing missing is they have never repented of their sins. They have never come to service to Christ alone. And in fact, the picture is that Jesus is standing outside the assembly on the outside of the church building and going, Hello? Why do you think you're gathering together? I'm standing at the door knocking. Does anyone even hear my voice? Because if the church would actually just open its door to me, I would come in and eat with you, and you with me. 
But as it is, you want no part of me. Because you are blind, you are wretched, you are pitiful, and you are naked. And yet you boast in your clothing. You boast in your status and your wealth. Jesus says none of that does anything. I don't care how well-dressed you are. I don't care how good your building looks. I don't care how much money you have. I don't care if everything's solvent. None of that is a testament to faithfulness. This is a very good message for our generation. I will simply say, all of these churches are present in our generation. This one is very largely present in our culture. Oh, yes. Yep. Yep. Do you know how many people have told me, if you stay faithful, God blesses you with lots of people and lots of money? Yep. Churches. He blesses churches that way. If you are faithful, you will have a lot of people and a lot of money. None of that is true. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes it doesn't. If there's anything about all seven of these churches, we should learn there is not a one-size-fits-all because there's not a one-size-fits-all suffering. Look at the first churches there. He's going, um, so... You're doing really well. You're faithful in a lot of things, but I'm letting you know, for the next 10 years, most of you are going to die martyrs' deaths. Stay faithful to the end. And uh, I'll give you the crown of life. Later. He doesn't say, by the way, you should move to the boonies and avoid any of that. Nope. You're going to die. And then he moves on to the next church. You're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Isn't there any like instruction? You know, take up arms. Nope. You're going to die. And it's a gift I'm giving you. And then he moves on to the next church. There's not a one-size-fits-all. He's not given that to Laodicea. In fact, in Laodicea, he's like, you don't even want me. He says, I'm outside the church. You're gathered together and your focus is not me. It's not my words. It's not what you have heard and received. Nope, you're just full of yourself. (laughs) He's like, but I'm here. You want me a part of this? I'll I'll come in, no problem. And there is not a direct challenge and ultimatum but there is one in the subtext of verse 21 to the one who actually does open the door to the one who conquers i will grant him to sit with me on my throne as i also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne what side of this cosmic battle are you going to be on it's not about your comfort and popularity it is not about any of this wealth blessings none of that it's not about any of that This is about faith to Christ alone and being a faithful and true witness just as he is. Because the reality is, look at Christ's ministry. I I tell you, I I was trained by guys in seminary that, uh, well, well, neither of them were pastors, but they they trained how to guide nonprofit ministries and make them solvent and faithful, or not faithful, solvent and blessed and all this kind of stuff, right? Most of that class I have thrown away because the vast majority of it has nothing to do with Christianity. It's just running a church like a business. And one of the things that I asked, because at that point in my Christian walk, um, I was at a church that was, while solvent, struggling. And and the things that they were teaching, I was just like, you got to understand, I... Where, where I live, 
if you preach the word of God, it is not popular. I don't know, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, and he says, well, you're going to have to decide what you want. I said, what do you mean? He says, well, he says, that, that's, a, that's a decision you're going to have to make. If, if you are living, and this is the one that knew exactly what Broome County was like. I've talked to you about this guy before. And he says, you're going to have to decide if that's something that you keep. He says, because if you preach the word of God in a society like that, it's going to make you unpopular and the church will not grow. He says, in the 90s, it would have. In the 2000s, maybe. Today, nope. I said, well, I think you know what side of that I'm on. He says, oh, no, I understand. He says, I'll tell you what side of it I'm on. He says, I'd preach it too. He says, but you have to understand where you live and the place that you are, it's going to lead to a lack of popularity. And he says, and I don't have a solution for you. That's just how it is there. And I was, that was, well, it was frustrating and liberating all at the same time. And, but the reality is, we don't all live in the same places. I was going to seminary with guys who preached in southern, southeastern Pennsylvania. Very similar things. And would open a church and in a few weeks would have two, 300 people. Same in the south. You were talking about the size of some of the churches in Florida that you had seen. The same thing exists there. Churches cannot change who they are and who they served based on what culture they happen to be in or what timeline they happen to be in. We live in a very bizarre timeline where a massive transition is happening in our culture that most people don't even fully realize the significance of. And we are learning how many churches are going to choose faithfulness over popularity. That's just going to be the way of it. Um, and, and, and that you can still be faithful and popular in certain aspects of this culture too and in certain ways. Uh, it's, it's just such a strange part of history and it leads to a lot of Christians being very confused. And this is why I love the book of Revelation because in the midst of all the confusion of being faithful, whatever effect that is in whatever culture you're in, the book of Revelation has something to say to you. Be faithful no matter the outcome. You cannot measure it by the significance of blessing. You just can't do it. And the hardest time to ever learn that is when everything's going well and comfy. And that's what... The last church is here to remind us. Just because you're all well-dressed, all the bills are paid, you're all wealthy, and everything's fine, and there's no big conflicts going on, that does not mean all things are well. In fact, as he says, not only are all things not well, I'm not even in there. That should be a challenge to all of us, the way we think, the way we see fellowship and the importance of it. Um, any thoughts here before we close out here. We're going to make a beeline through the rest of Revelation because uh, the references to the Spirit are very uh, largely centered on the very end of the book. Um, but before we leave the, the salutations here for the first three chapters, any thoughts or questions here at the end of those first three chapters? I, I think it's fair warning to all of them what's, what's, what's to come. Yep. ahead of them, yep. and then also where they're at. Yep. You know, I think it's pretty cut and dry. Yeah, <laughs> and and don't and don't look at somebody else's path and become conceited and 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 jealous of it. Right. This is something I really had to wrestle with. I mean, I really had to wrestle with this. I I have friend, I have a friend right now, who is a faithful preacher in Ohio. Right? When he was in Broome County, uh, I make fun of this. 
when he was in Broome County, preaching faithfully led to a church that went from 100 people to 20, almost overnight. Now he's in Ohio. Love the guy to death. And he's in a completely different culture there. And he says, they brought me on only because I preached the Bible and they were so hungry for it. This is the church has doubled in size in the three years that I've been here. 150 to 300. He says, I haven't changed a thing. I haven't changed a single thing that I do. And he's like, it is the most eye-opening thing I've ever seen because when I was, in, when I was at my previous church, everyone was telling me it was because I was doing something wrong. He says, I haven't changed a blasted thing. This is a personal friend of mine. And, and I remember saying the same thing to Brian King. Right? He had the same effect. He says, when I, he says, in the 90s, he says, I haven't changed the way I've preached 24 years. He's served in two different churches. In the 90s and all this, I was faithful to this in a, in a different place. And he says, you could, you could add people by the hundreds. He says, now, the, church he, the last church he was in, 220 down to 140. Just like that. And, and he says, I haven't changed a single thing that I have done. And the reality is, regardless of culture and place, our job is the same. Not just as preachers. I, just, I do that because I have a lot of pastors that are friends of mine. But the same for all churches. Whatever the effect, the job does not change. We are to be faithful to Christ no matter the effect. So what if it makes us popular? That's going to be a very hard road to walk. Because it's going to be very hard not to equate faithfulness with Christ with blessing. That's very hard. But it'll be yours to walk. What if we, what if we preach it to a very affluent society and everything is good and money is flowing? Like good? It's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a poor man. Why? Because of so many distractions and because he has to learn that he is poor and destitute and in need when he is physically not. It's very difficult. Right. Because it has to start at humility, and that's something that's very hard in this world to have when you have all things accessible to you. It doesn't matter the effect. It doesn't matter what it is. It matters who we are faithful to and what we are saying. All right, let's, let's pray, and then we'll come and we'll finish the book of Revelation, one of, one of my favorite books. Um, Father, we are grateful for your word. We are thankful, uh, especially for Christ. We're thankful that your spirit indwells your people and we pray, Father, that if we were to be found among this list, we pray two things. One, that you would make us faithful. And Father, if you see fit to bless us with suffering, that we pass through it with grateful hearts. We pray for that because it is something that is so far from us naturally, but it speaks deep into the heart of your people that we will depend on you and follow you no matter the effect or the cost. We pray for it, Father. We know that we do not possess that on our own that on our own we would desire comforts and ease of days. But Father, if ease of days are not gifted to us, we would not seek to steal them. Feed us with the food that is our portion. We pray along with the prophet, lest we be hungry and steal and profane your name, or lest we are full and forget your name and say, Who is the Lord? Instead, Father, we pray that you feed us with our daily bread, Make us content to walk the path that you have gifted us and make us grateful. We pray in your son's name. Amen.